0: I've titled my sermon this morning "A Table Flipping Easter," and I did this because I want you to feel some of the zeal of the Lord when it comes to this, when it comes to worship on this holiday. Easter, the Christian holy day, and I do mean to break that holiday word up into two words, the Christian holy day has its roots in the Jewish holy day of Passover, Pascha as they called it in the early church. The difference, of course, between these two is that in the early church, or in the the ancient of old Passover, the, the land they slain never rose from the dead that's the distinctive thing about easter today Pascha, is that the lamb that they slayed has risen from the dead until christ took on that role it didn't have that meaning so now we look at easter in a whole new light and it's passover or Pascha that that our story takes place today in this text we'll see that christ takes extraordinary measures to purify the worship in the temple at passover And when confronted about it, he makes monumental claims about his authority and personhood. And what I hope to show you is that looking back at these events, Christ truly was the man that he claimed to be. And his words really did come to pass. And scripture was fulfilled in his person. Again, we'll be looking at the gospel of John this morning. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. These are the words of God this morning, church. So let's give attention to them. Of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The word of God for his People, let's pray. Fathers, we come to your holy and inspired word this morning. We pray that you would inspire us by it. The same Holy Spirit that breathed it out and gave us this text. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would breathe on us this morning. That each and every person in this room would encounter Jesus. That your Spirit would work in our hearts That it would ready us to encounter Jesus in the text. That we would see not just words on a page, but we would see the Jesus that it points to and see that in Jesus we have eternal life. So Lord, I pray that you prepare my heart, prepare their hearts, prepare all of our hearts as we worship and engage what you have said to us this morning. I pray that the the thoughts and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. That the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you. Oh God, my rock, our rock and our redeemer. We pray these things in Christ's name. amen Amen. Amen. so as i said the story starts out in passover but we have to ask what is Passover? If we're going to just jump right into this, we need to have a better understanding of what Passover is. It says in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So what were they doing in Passover? What is the meaning of this? Well, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And if you've followed any of my sermons, you know that I can hardly t- say anything in the New Testament without going to the Old Testament first. Because it informs the way that we look at the New. So back in Exodus 12, you would find the institution of Passover. And what was going on is the Egyptian or the Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians, the Hebrews. You've heard this story, right? They were under slavery under Pharaoh. And Pharaoh would not let the people go, even though God came to Moses and told Moses, Tell Pharaoh, let your people go let my people go. And what did he say? He said, No. And God hardened his heart, and he hardened his own heart through that, through those plagues that Moses came and warned Pharaoh about over and over again. This hardened his heart, and he would not let the people go. And the final uh, final plague that came was the plague of the firstborn. You probably heard this before, the death of the firstborn. This was a judgment against Pharaoh, against the Egyptians, and against their gods. We see this explicitly in Exodus twelve twelve. So to evade this plague, this final tenth plague, God instituted the Passover for the Israelites. Now what were the Pass or what was the Passover? What were they to do in this rite, this ritual of the church? Well, they were to set aside a spotless lamb, and they would slaughter this lamb. You can just think of a pure white pretty lamb, and they'd go and kill it, blood everywhere, gore, it's it's a nasty scene, and they would take the blood from this lamb, and they would go and paint the doorposts of their house. And when they would do that, they would paint the doorposts, and God would see that, and he would see the blood of the lamb, and what that meant to God is that this house has their sins paid for, because the sins have been placed on another. This symbolic lamb. Their, their sins were supposed to have been placed on the lamb. And that lamb was the atonement lamb. They were supposed to be at one with God because they have slain this lamb. So they would, they would cook this lamb. They would eat the entire thing with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And then God would pass over these houses that had the blood on their doorposts. But all of the rest that did not obey the command of the Lord, death came. This was the final plague. The death of the firstborn. And at the end of this institution, God said in Exodus 12, 24 through 27 this. He says, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. That's a long time. Forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what what does this mean by this service? What shall you say? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And catch this this is the part that I want to really focus in on this morning. And it says, And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. This was a solemn event, this was a worshipful event. Now let's jump forward to Jesus's day. The practice in, is, in Jesus's day was a little bit different, but they were still following this. They, were, they weren't in Egypt anymore. God had delivered them. They crossed the Red Sea. They'd come into the, the Promised Land. But they were still gathering to worship Passover. So all the people from all, all the Jews from all the land would go and gather in Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because that's where the temple was. And they would gather in the temple on Passover to offer sacrifices on this obligatory holiday. Holiday. Remember, He said to do it forever. So they feel obliged to do this. They're coming to do this, so this is the one day of the year when the church is going to, or the the temple is going to be packed out more than any other day of the year. You can kind of imagine it's kind of like Easter, right? So if you're going to come to church on any day of the year, it's going to be on Easter. It was the same in the temple in their day. If you're going to come on any day of the year, it would be during Passover because this was an obligatory holiday for the people. Now, what Jesus should have found at the temple during Passover was a solemn assembly, like we just talked about. Bowed heads. You can kind of imagine it. Quiet like the original Passover, remembering what Jesus or what God had done and delivering the people, how he promised to take them out of that land, out of slavery, and what that means for them personally. That's what he should have found. But what did he actually find? We read it in verse 14. It says in verse 14, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. A little bit of a different scene. So the state of the temple and, uh, at Passover in Jesus' day was quite different. They were selling sacrifices. They had money changers. And what's going on here? What, what were the sacrifices that they were selling? Well, this was for convenience sake, kind of as a, as a business model. People, they had to have a lamb to slaughter, so they obviously probably wouldn't raise up a lamb and then take it for miles and miles all the way to the temple. So they would just wait till they got there. Kind of like when you're going on vacation to the beach, you don't want to buy that huge beach umbrella until you get down there, right? So you just buy it when you get down there because you don't want to travel with it. It's kind of the same thing going on here. And they knew that this was a business model. If you'll notice beach uh, umbrellas, beach umbrellas and that kind of thing, that's more expensive in Florida because they got you there, you're already there. So it's the same kind of thing is happening here. There's a high demand because it's an obligatory holiday. The people have to be there if they're going to be faithful Jews and little supply because everyone needed them. Everyone needed a sacrifice. So they wouldn't have brought the animals all the way there. They would just buy it when they would get there. Now you have the money changers. What are the money changers doing? Well, the money changers were charging for their service to convert foreign currencies into an acceptable currency of the temple because the temple only accepted approved coinage. Now, this is something of like when you go into an arcade. A lot of arcades these days, they just, they just have a card that you swipe. But it used to be that they had the little coins. Do you remember this? You'd go in, and it's about exactly the same size as a quarter. But you can't stick a quarter in the arcade machine. That doesn't work. You must go buy the coins that you can only use at the arcade There. So you go and bring your money and you buy this coin that you can only use there. And there's probably in a little bit of an exchange rate. They're going to charge you. They're making money off of you. There's a business model that they're using there. And that's something of what was going on in the temple. They were running a monopoly on the exchange and charged outrageous rates for people to just come and worship. They were were making a business practice out of this. So the the nonprofit was beefing up their profit margins to do what? To, To pour back into themselves to beef up this big religious endeavor. Now, why were they doing this? What was their their motive? If you would have asked them, they would have probably said something like this. Well, this this is our outreach program. We, would have, we want we want worship to be as accessible as possible to these people. We want it to be easy for them to come and worship. We want the forwarders to come in and they not have to think about anything, just buy the stuff and they go through it and it just be easy for them, right? Well, Jesus saw right through this. Jesus isn't a fool. When he looks at this, he sees right through him. It says in verse 25, For he himself knew what was in man. He knew what was going on here. He knew that this was a little bit of a sketchy practice. Yes, it was in a church building. Yes, it was in a a temple. Yes, it was in a holy place. But what's going on is not right. These people were not genuine, or else Jesus wouldn't have done what he did. Jesus was sinless, he never made a wrong action. So what he did wasn't actually too much. What he was doing was what was appropriate. And even when they came to him afterwards and said that they believed his signs, it says Jesus would not entrust himself to them. He sees right through these people. They're hypocrites. They're not serious about what is going on there. Now Josephus, a Jewish historian around the time of Jesus, and he's Jewish, right? So he's going to be biased if anywhere. He should be biased towards the Jews. But he writes of Annas, the high priest at this time. He, he writes of him and he says, I quote, a great hoarder up of money. A great hoarder up of money. So he, he's hoarding in this project to get all the money for himself and for this big religious endeavor. So they were hoarding the money because the temple was still under construction, It says that it's taken us 46 years to build this, and they weren't done yet. If you you look back in history, that temple wasn't finished until A.D. 64. So it's taken a long, long time to build this huge, massive temple. It's probably very immaculate. It's probably very pretty. Lots of gold, lots of shiny stuff, lots of money being poured into this. And it reminds me something of uh, the time of the Reformation. If you remember in the time of the Reformation, there was a man named Tetzel going out and selling indulgences. He was selling indulgences, telling people that if they went and bought these indulgences, that that good work of buying that indulgence would help get people out of uh, purgatory. That it helped get their loved ones into heaven. Now what was really going on here? What was really going on is the Pope was trying to build St. Peter's Basilica. Right, you go and look at this really beautiful building and you think, wow, it must have took a bunch of holy people and a long time to really get the hard-earned money to get this. No, it didn't take that long, really. If you just get a lot of crookery in, in, the, in, the, in the place and the holy people, you can get a lot of money really fast. So that's something of what was going on here. They were taking advantage of these people and manipulating them in order to beef up their own religious endeavor. And they weren't about the heart of the matter at all. So what is Jesus' response to this? What does Jesus think of this Passover temple worship? Well, we read it in verse 15 and 16. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out. And he drove them out of the temple. It says, with the sheep and oxen. In other words, he drove people out with a whip and the sheep and oxen. He's driving people out with whips. He's flipping tables. He's emptying cash registers and demanding that they cut it out. It's pure outrage. Jesus is mad about it. He's angry about it, and it's a righteous, holy anger that he's he's employing here. Now, what is going on in this story? It seems a little bit confusing. Well, there's actually something happening, happening biblically. Jesus is actually stepping into a new role. He's stepping into the messianic role. He has been the Messiah all along, but he's starting to show people what's going on. We read in verse 17 this. It says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So his disciples are thinking about this. They're thinking scripturally. What does this mean? Zeal for your house will consume me. is a quote from Psalm 69.9. It says, zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So Jesus is stepping into this messianic role. Further, in Zechariah 14.21, Zechariah prophesies that at the coming of the day of the Lord, when Messiah comes, it says, Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And catch this. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of the hosts on that day. That word traitor isn't traitor like Benedict Arnold. It's trader like businessman, T-R-A-D-E-R, trader. And then Jesus shows himself as this messianic figure when he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. I'm not going to let it happen. The Messiah has come. He's come to bring deliverance. He's come to bring purity. He's come to bring reformation and change. So the disciples saw this action as the fulfillment of prophecies which looked forward to the coming Messiah. Messiah is here. Now let's look at Jesus personally. Why is he so mad? He's, he's not just fulfilling this because he's a cold, heartless person and he's just trying to get through the fulfillment. No, Jesus is personally angry about this. He's outraged. Why? Because a house of trade essentially means that they're running the temple like a business. They're running this holy place like the world. So greed... Spiritual consumerism, shallow faith, and irreverence are fueling the fire of Jesus' zeal. He's zealous here. This is the right word that we can uh, uh, appropriate to this. It's zeal for the Lord that is making Jesus do these things. So they were feeding the consumerism of the people as a kind of a bait-and-switch program where they're, they're bringing people in and trying to get them to come saying, we need to take care of the poor. But really, while they're there, they're taking advantage of those people, taking their money and then preaching to them, we need to take care of the poor. Right? It's extremely hypocritical, luring these people in, trying to get them to go through this kind of shallow worship, and it's wrong. Now, this was all taking place in the outer court. If you're familiar with the temple in that day there was three parts. There was the outer court which is sometimes called the court of the Gentiles, and then there's the holy place, and then there's the most holy place, sometimes called the holy of holies. Now what this means is that this area, this outer court was as far as the Gentiles could go to worship. Gentiles couldn't go into the holy place. So if the Gentiles wanted to pray, if they wanted to meditate, if they wanted to worship the Lord, they were having to do it in this noisy, shopping-like mall atmosphere. It's a mess. It was corrupt, and Jesus sees that this can't be happening. If, if these, Jews, or these, these Gentiles are coming in and they're trying to be genuine, but we're making all this noise, we're making all this fuss, what is going on? So his motive was reverence and a deep concern that the spirit of worship should be honored. Jesus cares about the purity of our worship. That not only the the Jews should take this seriously, but the Jews should not be a stumbling block to the Gentiles who are also trying to worship Him. They're trying to be there, trying to worship Yahweh. They're seeking, they're looking. And here, the Jews are actually becoming the, the problem, the stumbling block. They should be the ones that are actually reaching out, bringing in the Gentiles, and they're the ones holding up the show. So this is why Jesus is so angry, why He's outraged. Now, this should cause us to kind of pause and think about our worship, Right? It's, it's really easy to get contextual and just say, well, that was then, this is now. But what does Jesus think about our Easter worship? What does he think about what we're doing here on Sunday? What some churches are doing on Sunday? When our church lobbies look like shopping malls, the youth groups have the aesthetics of trendy stores like Sun and Hollister, and when we rename our sanctuaries from sanctuary to auditorium, which Oxford Dictionary, by the way, defines that as the part of a theater, the concert hall, or other public building in which the audience sits to watch a stage performance, I don't know how Jesus could call it anything other than what it is. A house of trade we must take the worship of God seriously we must be very careful in the way that we approach a holy God when we fill a place and call it an auditorium what that makes all of you sitting there you, that makes you an audience and I hope that's not what we're doing to this one I don't believe that it is but if we fill this place and we call it a sanctuary that changes who you are you are worshipers worshippers church You are not an audience. You are not here to watch me. It is not about me. It's not about the people up here playing the pianos. It's not about the show. It's about Jesus. It's about encountering him. It's about having a a real heart of worship. So Jesus, what would he like to do? He'd probably like to clog the t-shirt cannons as people are trying to give free stuff away. He'd like to kick over the the, the fog machines where we're making a big show of stuff. He'd like to run out all the hypocrites feeding this kind of consumerism. Why? Because what you win them with is what you win them to. If they're there for the cool stuff, that's the only thing that's going to keep them there. If you're only here to hear something real flashy, a real cool sermon, then you're only going to stay as long as my sermons are good. But if you're here to worship, if you're here to hear from the Lord, that's going to keep you here. If you're here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you're going to keep coming because he's still alive, he's still reigning, he's still working. So if someone comes to a church once a a year, like many people came to the temple at Passover once a year on that obligatory holiday, do we really want to fill the worship with so many distractions that a foreigner, uh, a lost person can hardly even think to worship? No. You want to be careful about our worship. Are we keeping the resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the main attraction? Are we an attractional church that attracts because of the gospel and what we have to offer there? Are we bringing out all the stuff to just get people to come? you got to be very, very careful that it's not all about the cool sacrifices of the worship team, the, the production team that got the light show just perfect and got everything just perfect, planning for months. Is it about that? No. That stuff might be cool, but you can get really misguided in your worship. Psalm 51 says this. We said it earlier. For you will not delight in a sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God will, Or a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. True worship, church, is about the heart. If your worship doesn't go through right here first, it's not real worship. It's a show. It's all fake. And before we start feeling self-righteous because Village Church is never going to be able to afford the light show. We're never going to be able to have any of that kind of stuff. We're not going to have the, the cool band and all that stuff. Just recognize, though, that you are the church. This building is not the church. We, as members, are the church. And we're not just here on Sunday, right? We walk out of here, and you guys do things on Monday through Saturday. So let's internalize this a little bit. What does Jesus think of our Easter worship? And remove yourself from the church. Think about the ways that you step out this door on a Sunday and you walk out into the world. What ways have you turned your heart towards consumerism and self-indulgence and the ways that you keep Easter a holiday, a holy day? Think about that. Think about what we're actually doing when we buy all those things. How much are we being baited to, to, to give into something else other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Have you been more affected by commercialism and self indulgence than you realize? Has the world actually weighed a little bit on you more than you realize? Ask yourself this question honestly Who is profiting more from your finances, your energy, and your time this holiday? Big businesses like Walmart, Target, or your own soul? Think about that. Who profits more through this holiday? The corporations? Or your own heart? Is your heart growing through this season? It's hard questions. I'm asking myself this. It's not just just preaching to you. I'm preaching to myself. We have to be very careful in the way that we approach our worship. So we have to ask, just like the Jews did, is Jesus' zeal justified? In verse 18, they come to him asking this. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Prove yourself. What's, What's going on? Now surprisingly, the Jews are more curious than they are outraged about this. And I'll show you why in a second. They don't even try to defend the state of the temple. right? That's not what they say. Not, they don't say, how could you do this to this holy place? They're just saying, what's going on here? What's happening? Now, it's clear that everyone there was captivated by the moral force that Jesus employed. It wasn't the sheer brute strength that drove these people, or even the fear of the whip, that drove these people out of the temple. As it was the moral resonance that this action was at least somewhat warranted. What Jesus was doing, these people could see, I think this is actually maybe what we even need. Maybe what scriptures have been pointing to all along. Maybe this is actually a work of God. Now, the Jews, uh, they they wanted to know by what sign is he going to validate these things. Is he just this this self-righteous holy man proclaiming to be holy or is he the real deal? They want a sign, they want a signal. This is why the prophets of old, when they came, Moses came and Elijah came, they had signs, right? They did miracles, they did stuff. And the Jews were always seeking this. Show us, show us yourself, prove yourself. How can we know that you are genuine, Jesus, they are asking him. So when they ask this, though, they're asking this question, probably feeling pretty safe, because the, the, the temple commerce, what was going on in that day, this current state of affairs under that temple administration was approved by the high priest. So they feel pretty safe asking this question. They're not going to get in trouble by asking Jesus this. This temple uh, was under the construction plan of Annas, that great hoarder of money. So in their mind, they have this under control. If Jesus says anything, he's actually making a claim that his authority is higher than the high priest. So this is why they're feeling pretty safe. No matter what Jesus says, he's kind of in trouble, right? They can come to Jesus. Even if he's right, they're more right because they got the high priest on their side. So that's why they can come to Jesus and ask these things that are so heart-wrenching questions. What are you doing here? What's going on? So, what does Jesus do? Well, he offers the Passover sign. It says in verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Remember, all their minds are set on this temple right there next to them, what they're thinking of. Now this statement would have been befuddling to the Jews. What in the world is Jesus saying? Is this man saying that this temple doesn't just need reformed, but it needs to be completely destroyed? He just cleaned the place and now he's saying, you destroy it and then raise it back up? Is that what Jesus is saying? Are you really implying that the 46 years that we've poured into building this temple all could be for naught? Is that what Jesus is saying? And even if you did, Jesus, somehow tear down this temple, rebuild it in three days, it's taken us 46 years to build this. And we're not done yet. The, the, the first temple took hundreds of years as well. And you think that you can build it in three days? So the Jews, they're, very con- they're confused about what's going on here. What is Jesus talking about? And they're confused because they see this sign in a strictly literal sense. Jesus says these words and they can't see past them towards the deeper meaning. Verse 21 gives us the full meaning of the sign. Remember we said uh, last week that signs must be interpreted to get deeper meaning. We've got to go deep into the text. We can look at the scriptures and search them and think that in them they have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness to Christ. And he is the eternal life. He is who gives life. So we have to see this deeper meaning. And we see this in verse 21. In verse 21, Jesus says, or the text says, that he was speaking about the temple of his body. That changes things, doesn't it? It shifts the way that we start to think about this. When Jesus offers this sign, he's making some bold claims. First, he's claiming that he has the right to destroy the temple, which is an assault on the authority of the high priest. He's essentially saying that when you see this sign performed, there's a new high priest in town, and it's not Annas. Jesus is taking some bold claims here. Second, he's claiming that not only does he have the right and power to destroy the temple, but he also has the power to rebuild it in three days. An impossible feat. Only God could do such a thing. So in some ways, he's almost claiming to say, Oh, I got God on my side. Or I am God. Right? Very bold in the way that he's speaking. And John shows us that Jesus' meaning is that Jesus fulfills the role of the temple in his body. In other words, that temple building was the last one. If anyone tries to construct another temple, they're building another Tower of Babel. Because this is the last temple that God is constructing. It's the temple of Jesus where true worship happens. The old has gone away. The new has come. This is the new creation theology that we've been talking about all through this gospel of John. Jesus is bringing something new. So this this saying, destroy this temple and raise it up in three days, it has a double meaning. The primary meaning is that Jesus is the temple who is destroyed and resurrected. John 10 records Jesus saying of his body, of his own flesh, no one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. In other words, I'm doing this. This is my work. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to raise it up. This charge I have received from my Father. So primarily Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection. What we're here to celebrate today on Easter. To be clear, this is Jesus saying he has power over life and death. No more death because of Jesus is what's happening here. John later writes of his vision of Jesus. The same person that writes this gospel later writes uh, the the revelation of John. And he says in Revelation 1, When I saw him, this is Jesus he's speaking about. John saw Jesus later on. He said, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. Catch this. I love this. I died. I died. He says, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is what Jesus tells John later in his life. So the primary meaning of Jesus destroying and resurrecting the temple is that it's been fulfilled in his own body. He is the new temple. Now, what's the the secondary meaning? The secondary meaning and and ironic meaning is that Jesus is actually pointing to the, the, the literal destruction of the temple and its sacrifices. This happened in 70 A.D., If you know your history, you can look back and see that the the temple was destroyed. The Romans came in, they set Jerusalem on fire, they walled in the Jews, they killed millions of Jews, is what Josephus records, and they destroyed that temple. They put an end to it, and it hasn't been rebuilt since. It hasn't been rebuilt since. And when the curtain separating the, the Holy of Holies from the holy place was torn at the death of Jesus, remember where it tore? From the top to the bottom. That was torn from the top of the bottom because it was a work of God bringing des- destruction, bringing judgment upon the, the way of the old, the old temple, the old sacrifices. It was coming to an end. And at his death, at the death of Jesus, when that tor- that tear happened and that separation from the holy place and the holy of holies, this was the, the impending and destruction sign. It's coming. The temple's coming to an end because of what Jesus has done. The one-time sacrifice for all was made at his death because he was the Passover lamb. He is the one that has been slain. He is the one that fulfills all the sacrifices that all of them were pointing to. Jesus is the Paschal lamb. He is the one that we've been waiting for. And his words about rebuilding the temple refer to its replacement by the spiritual temple and the new covenant in the blood of the lamb. This is the way that we worship now. We don't go to the temple. We, we don't go back to Jerusalem to worship. So once again, Jesus becomes the seamless link between the old creation and the new creation. The old temple and its sacrifices are fulfilled in Jesus. Now because of him, a new way of worship has emerged. We're not in Jerusalem this morning. We're in North City, Illinois. And we're still worshiping in the temple because we are worshiping in Jesus, because we worship him in spirit and in truth. As we'll see later in John 4, when he see, uh, sees the woman at the well, she says, where do we worship at? And Jesus says, "We're going to a new way of worshiping is coming. We're going to worship in spirit and in truth, right here, right now, North City, Illinois. We, as Village Church, are worshiping in Jesus. We are in Christ, meeting the Father. Right? We, we've been lifted up into the heavenly places. I've said this before. We don't realize how high we're going. When I say church, lift up your hearts and say, we, we say we lift them up to the Lord. We are in the presence of the Holy of Holies. We are before God the Father, it, with Jesus interceding." With for us. So, church, what do we do in light of this? We asked this this morning in our Sunday school question. What do we do in light of the resurrection, in light of Easter and what Jesus has done and how he rose from the dead? What do we do? There's two things. Number one, we believe. We got it already in Sunday school. The other is keep the feast. What do we mean by believe? Well, verse 22 says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now remember what this great resurrection hope is about. What Easter is about. If you believe, church, you will be passed over in the final death. Just like the the Israelites were passed over in the original Passover. You will not have to go through the eternal death because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death has lost its sting and Christ has defeated it in victory. We will be with Christ In his presence, living forever. Real, true, eternal life. So if you came here today and you realize that your doorpost is not covered by the blood of Jesus, the Passover lamb, today is the day of salvation. Do not wait. Don't delay. This is your offer now to hear that Jesus Christ offering himself to you as your Passover lamb wants you to have your doorpost covered. If you do not want to be swept away in the plagues like Egypt was, you come to Christ Death comes for us all, and if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you will not have eternal life. That is what the Word of God says. So if you don't place your faith there, then your fate is going to be the same as the Egyptians and their false gods. You'll get swept away. The people of God will cross the Red Sea in baptism, and you will be swallowed up by the waves in death. That's the reality of the Gospel. It's horrible news if you don't believe it, but it's the best news ever if you believe it. Right? It is horrible it is eternal life it's new life because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and simply following him so that's the first thing we believe number two we keep the feast what do I mean by that 1 Corinthians 5 6-8 through eight says this Paul says this your boasting is not good do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened remember the Passover feast what did they have they had unleavened bread Paul writes, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. The King James says, keep the feast. I love that. Keep the feast. How? Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Practically, how do we do this? Well, Paul is essentially saying that you need a temple cleansing yourself. Your own heart needs a temple cleansing. You need to get rid of the old leaven and bring in the new leaven of un- of its sincerity and truth, that pure unleavened bread. If you're going to profess to believe in Christ, you must keep the feast of Passover by cleansing out the old like the Israelites did and bringing in the unleavened bread. The Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Now you must therefore live lives free of bad leaven. The context here, in, in Paul's day, he was writing of sexual immorality in the church. right? These kind of things. Sin sin problems we need to get rid of it we need to be a church that is fighting against sin because if we're not killing sin it will be killing us as the old Puritan John Owen said we must be having ourselves cleaned by the gospel we come in here each and every work we confess or each, each and every week we come in here and we confess our sins we lay them down we're reminded of the good news of Jesus Christ and we're, we're changed we walk out of here as people that are getting rid of the old leaven and putting on Christ each and every week So if you want a pure, undefiled church, you must repent of your sins, of malice and evil, as Paul says, and believe to replace the leaven with sincerity and truth, virtue, righteousness, being conformed to the image of Son Jesus, being more like this man that went out and cleansed the temple. So church, perhaps what we need is a temple cleansing ourselves. Our temples need to be cleansed. We need to get rid of the old and bring in the new. We need Christ to ravage our hearts, to to drive out our misaligned affections with the whip of the Holy Spirit. It might hurt a little bit, but that's really what we need. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves, it says in Hebrews 12. We might need a little bit of a whip of Jesus to come in, the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts, to change us. But we need to pray for this. This is what we want. We actually want to be purified. We want to pray for conviction of heart. We want to pray for that same kind of zeal like Jesus had. That's our hope this morning, that we can be like Jesus, that that great resurrection hope can be our hope, not just Him being rose from the dead, but that we can be first fruits of that. He's the first fruits, but we can reap that harvest as well. That we can live that resurrection life that Jesus instituted in His resurrection. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning needing cleansed, needing forgiven. We are so thankful that already we have laid our sins down at your feet. We're unworthy to be forgiven, and yet you forgive us. We are so thankful for that. We believe the hope of the gospel this morning. I pray for each and every member of this church, every person sitting here this morning, that your Holy Spirit would work on our hearts, including mine, like